This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 28, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The disparity in sentencing for equivalent volumes of crack versus powdered cocaine has angered criminal justice reformers for decades. Now even those who voted for the measures, including Joe Biden and Dick Durbin, are ready to end that disparity. Kevin Ring runs Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We discussed how we got here and what ought to come next. Where did we get this disparity between sentencing related to crack cocaine and powdered cocaine, which we should uh, be very clear, you can make a lot of crack cocaine with a relatively small amount of powdered cocaine. And and this is it it never made sense on its face if you think about it for just a few minutes. But where did it where did it come from? It came from the moral panic in the 1980s um, because violent crime was high in this country. If people don't remember, it really was a time where you wouldn't have gone into New York City. Um, violent crime was much higher than it is even today with the crime spike we're having. And a lot of people associated that with this new drug, um, crack cocaine, and um, thinking that the violence was associated with the crack, that it was a quick high. There was all this concern that there were these crack babies. You were seeing stories that women were having babies who were addicted to crack, that people were acting in all sorts of different ways. It was the new drug. And so there was a complete moral panic about it. And then what happened was Len Bias, who was a superstar basketball player at the University of Maryland, drafted by the Boston Celtics, dies of an overdose. Now, a classic, you know, fun thing in history is people think it's from crack. It was powder, but they didn't know that. So they think this is even more evidence that crack is the problem. Tip O'Neill's the Speaker of the House from Massachusetts. The Celtics now are in the news of losing this player. He says, we're going to come there and we're going to fix this. We're going to be tougher than Reagan on drugs. Reagan administration had proposed a 20 to one disparity between the treatment of powder and crack cocaine, how they get sentenced. And they said, we're going to beat them. And they end up coming up with a hundred to one disparity. And what that means is we have mandatory minimum sentences. So the amount of drugs that triggered a five-year mandatory minimum for crack was going to be five grams. And it was 500 grams for powder cocaine. These numbers were completely pulled out of the air as much as done in Congress. No hearings, no analysis of whether this you know, was deserved. But it was because in the 80s, there was this fear of crack. And there was a competition between the Reagan administration and the Democrats in Congress who could be tougher on drugs. I believe Joe Biden was in the Senate at that time, wasn't he? Well, yes, he's the architect of many of these policies. Um, yeah, people think of the 94 crime bill um, but the 1986 and 1988 anti-drug abuse acts, um, you know, have his fingerprints all over them. And, you know, look, there's members of the Senate today, uh, Chairman Dick Durbin from Illinois, who's chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He voted for the 100 to 1 disparity, said it's one of the worst votes he ever cast. Um, and so the question isn't, you know, were people bad back then? Everybody was bad back then on this issue. And there was a panic. The question is, are you getting right now? And so, yeah, and, you know, Joe Biden's evolution is 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 reflects that of much of the country. I mean, he supported this. Now his administration, the Justice Department testified yesterday to get rid of the disparity completely. Of course, it was reduced during the Obama administration somewhat. Um, but, yeah, no, Joe Biden is is an interesting character in this in this uh, play here. 
And we see some relics of it today uh, with this massive disparity between crack, cocaine, and powdered cocaine with respect to sentencing. Tom Cotton of Arkansas said, no, 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 you've got it all backwards. Uh, we should be in. We should increase the penalties uh, associated with uh, powdered cocaine, not reduce the penalties associated with crack cocaine, which uh, some of our Cato scholars uh, here suggested. Well, that's just monstrous, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Tom Cotton is going to be Tom Cotton, and the thing that's interesting is you still have, um, you know, federal prosecutors. I mean, this Assistant U.S. Attorneys Association in particular still making the claim that these drugs, crack and powder, should be treated differently. So I take it as progress that even Tom Cotton thinks that that's a mistake and that they should be treated the same. Now, of course, he gets the rest wrong because he proposes to fix it, as you said, by increasing penalties for powder cocaine. And you know, the great tell on somebody is no one has ever suggested that the federal penalties for powder were too low. It was only when civil rights groups and reformers said, hey, these crack penalties are too high that he said, oh, okay, well, we'll lift the powder penalties. It's it's completely ass backwards. And the problem with it is we don't need more low level offenders in the federal system. So the idea that the way to fix this is to increase the federal footprint in the drug war is obviously a mistake. What has the productivity, if you want to think of it that way, of cases and sentences that this disparity has created? Well, so what people saw right away, and by the way, the United States Sentencing Commission has been calling since 1995 to get rid of this disparity. So this isn't new. It just took Congress a long time to catch up. What we saw early on was despite whatever the use patterns were, which were not that different between races, was that 90% of the people being uh, prosecuted for crack were black. And so this led to almost a generation of young black men being incarcerated for these sentences that were 20 and 30 years longer for violent crimes. And even when Congress took a step towards fixing this in 2010, they reduced this disparity from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. We still see 80% of the people who are prosecuted for crack are black. And so this has been, this is not just a matter of criminal justice, it's racial justice. It's one of those things that when people talk about increasing trust between law enforcement and the communities it polices, this is a absolutely sore thumb because people see it. It is not implicit bias. It's not some nebulous concept of discrimination. It is in the criminal code, something for, for everyone to see for 30 years, outright discrimination. And and that is the type of thing that leads to distrust and makes people think there's two systems of justice, depending on your color. So Dick Durbin, one of the worst votes he ever cast, uh, is now leading the charge. And the, the graphic that I saw online was uh, right next to his name plate was a couple of bags of uh, what appeared to be cocaine. And for the illustrative purposes, for all intents and purposes, it was cocaine, um, saying, we've got to change this. And, uh, you know, for criminal justice reformers, this might be viewed as a as, as a pretty uh, big deal because, you know, in the 80s and 90s, cocaine was a very popular drug. What does that mean? What would that mean for uh, people in prison? And what does it mean for people who've been sentenced under these disparities many years ago? Yeah, well, let me just say, first of all, 
it's, if, if it's not clear, Fam thinks we shouldn't even have mandatory minimum sentences, especially for drugs. It makes no sense that we have these one-size-fits-all punishments. This would be a modest reform to equalize the punishment for crack and powder cocaine. Matthew Charles, who was the first beneficiary of the First Step Act and who works with us, testified at the hearing yesterday. His sentence was 35 years for because it was crack related. He might have gotten 15 years if it was powder. So that's the type of difference we're talking about. There's, I think, about 1,500 people a year right now who are sentenced on crack charges. I think there's about 10,000 people in federal prison who would get a chance to have their sentences reduced. Um, it's not automatic. They have to make sure that their prison records are fine and all the rest. But you're talking about, you know, so substantively, about 10,000 people could be affected by this. But the symbolism is really important too. You know, I mean, just the, all the things this country is going through about taking down monuments and changing the way we talk, all of these sort of steps are important. But you can't not do this. You have to address this. It's such a, um, a blot in the federal criminal code to treat these two drugs differently and know the impact it's having on black Americans. And so, you know, this isn't going to change the world. Like I said, we should be getting rid of all mandatory minimums, but it would be an important step both towards criminal justice and racial justice. Okay. So going forward, uh, what are some of the other areas that, I mean, this is, this particular issue, uh, is low hanging fruit. It is obvious the disparities in punishments that are, uh, handed out based on this disparity are clearly uh, massively racially disparate. Uh, what's next? Well, let me just say it should be low hanging fruit, but this, we don't have a function in Congress. We can't rename a post office in this political environment. It's so bad. So we still have a lot of work to do on this, but the next thing to do is get rid of all federal mandatory minimums. Um, let's go back to a system of checks and balances where prosecutors bring cases, judges decide punishments that are within a range that Congress sets. Um, and then the other thing we have to do is we have to create a second look law at the federal level. And just briefly, I mean, we have to give people serving these long prison sentences that we set out a chance to get back in front of a judge after 10, 15 years to reevaluate their sentence. There are lots of people like Matthew Charles who got these long sentences in the past and they need an opportunity to go back before a judge, talk about their rehabilitation. Sometimes they've changed, sometimes society's changed. We've changed our standards, but we don't always make those changes retroactive so these people don't benefit. So there's a lot of talk about clemency and President Biden uh, should be using his clemency authority to commute these long sentences, but we also wanna create a second look clause so people can get back into court. Speaking of clemency, um, how does Joe Biden compare so far with Donald Trump when it comes to clemency, or is it too early to, to make a comparison? It's too early right now because no one does anything really in their first year until the end of their first year. And so there have been meetings at the White House. They're looking at how they can um, use his authority, try to do it with a little more sense and rationality than President Trump did. I mean, President Trump was willing to use it, but it was a little... I mean, you know, if Kim Kardashian brought your case, you might've got a hearing, but it wasn't necessarily standard set out that, you know, people who didn't have a celebrity on their side felt like they would get a fair hearing. Um, so I think that what they're trying to do is create some standards and a process that will be fair, but really it, all that matters is how often he does it. I, I don't want us to get lost on process and I hope they don't either. The question is, is he going to use it? Because 
There's talk about the Justice Department makes it hard. It doesn't matter. If he wants to use his clemency authority, he can't. He can say, give me a bunch of cases. It is a plenary power. Right. So he can do it. I don't care if they put the pardon attorney office at NASA. If he wants to commute sentences, he can. So, you know, he'll be judged by that. We'll see. And hopefully he will not wait to the end of his presidency, as so many do, to use it. Um, So we'll see at the end of this year how he's doing. Are there ways for uh, executives, either governors or presidents, to mute I suspect the loss of political capital that inevitably goes along with making use of the clemency power. In, in I know in Kentucky, uh, Matt Bevin, on his way out of office, made prodigious use of of that power uh, and issued many, many pardons, many, many uh, commutations of sentences, and was absolutely lambasted by an otherwise uh, media that was you know, in almost any other circumstances might have been broadly supportive of uh, right. those efforts. Well, what happens is, you know, in his case, as in President Trump's, there were a lot of meritorious ones, but then there's always some that get mixed in that raise questions about how these people got on the list. And so I think that's where the process can help you politically. When President Obama commuted, you know, 1800 sentences and has received no blowback for that, um, several hundred life sentences were commuted and people are out now as a result. And we don't hear about that at all. And I think it's because he set out a process. He said, this is going to be the standard. If you're serving over 10 years for a drug charge, you know, I'm going to look at those. And so I think that's where it matters. And I think governors and the president should be bolder. I don't think there's a lot of blowback. If you give, you know, if you pardon Roger Stone, you're going to get grief for that. But for the most part, if you are um, using your authority to shorten sentences for people who are serving extreme sentences, there is, I think you win. I don't think you lose. I think I think he'd get a lot of credit for doing that. Kevin Ring is president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.